Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. You're hosted by Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and today I am speaking with Jen Hoare, who is an expert in the area of corporate intelligence and a managing director at Forward Risk and Intelligence. Jen was recommended to me as a guest by the OG great woman in fraud and host of Fraudish, Kelly Paxton, which is a reminder, we always love to get to meet new people um, through our community of excellent women and men in compliance. So today, Jen is going to tell us a little bit about her career path how she started out her career in journalism and now brings these skills when she is asking questions and doing investigations as part of corporate intelligence and human source intelligence. So with that, Jen, let's start by you telling us a bit about your background and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Lisa. And Kelly Paxton is such a great connector and in my opinion, human intelligence expert, because she loves asking great questions and eliciting insight from people who she's interested in, which is really a pillar of human intelligence work. But to get to re respond to your question, I identify as a recovering journalist. I started my career in media, absolutely loved it because it's all about being voraciously curious and learning from other people as a way to tell a story and get information to people who want to consume it. In the case of journalism, the American public, as was the audience in my career. And what's really neat and rewarding to me in my journalist recovery process is corporate intelligence is fundamentally about gathering information from a variety of sources through several dimensions of information collection to inform decision makers, be it corporations, private equity firms, law firms, as they proceed toward an investment transaction, a case, a project, et cetera. And the niche that I found that I really enjoy and I found to be very fruitful for clients is this tradecraft of human intelligence, which is a fancy way of saying finding smart people and learning from them for your job. And in my case, for fun as well. So, okay. wow. So when you started out in journalism, what kind of work did you start out with initially? So let's start a little bit at the beginning too. I would not want to overcharacterize or overstate my experience. I did get to work at the ABC News Washington Bureau, where it was not on air or anything illustrious like that, but worked behind the scenes on a number of national broadcasts, including This Week and World News Tonight, and then found an opportunity to do uh, some political writing and reporting at a publication that was part of National Journal. And then I worked at cbsnews.com as a continuation of a lot of that work that came before. And I worked on a book as a researcher for the esteemed Martha Raddatz, the senior foreign affairs correspondent for ABC, for her book that came out around 2004 or five, I believe. And so that was really, again, this spectrum of activities that really are highly relevant to what I do now, which is who knows something and how do I access what they know? And I think it's really important to say at the outset, and you forgive me if you were already going to bring this up, but there's a very big difference between 
in my opinion, espionage and intelligence, corporate espionage and corporate intelligence. I do not at all identify, nor do I want to be a part of anything in the corporate espionage orbit. Corporate intelligence is fundamentally about asking to people, sources, developing information through public records, for example. There is no stealing of information. And that's a really important distinction as it relates to the practice of human intelligence, because I'm often asked, how do you, quote, get people to talk to you? I'm not compelling anyone to do anything. I'm asking knowledgeable people what they know about something I'm trying to understand on behalf of a client. And that is truly how I approach everyone that I talk to to try to learn from them. Okay, so let me just ask, making sure that I am not as familiar with corporate intelligence or thankfully corporate espionage. So from either <laughs> side, thankfully. But one of the questions I would have about that, you know, when you're starting from the beginning, your objective is to learn things that you need to know to help someone make a knowledgeable decision. Is there any other way you specify just really basically for us what else you are, you're looking for and how you're really defining that? You just mentioned it a little bit. And how do you define that intelligence? And I understand the distinguishing with stealing. So maybe for a layperson, what would you define as the stealing of, in, of information? You raise a good point, which is what are the things that we're actually trying to learn about? That's I think that's the first foundational point about corporate intelligence is that we are working to understand a company, an executive, maybe an entire management team and their reputations, how they're regarded in their industries. Sometimes the questions that we're trying to address for clients are what are their market opportunities in a particular industry or sector, or maybe even a new country that where they want to operate. So that's the kind of the assignment that we're collecting information around. And the intelligence that ends up being really valuable is either when we validate something that a client wants to go forth and making a decision knowing they've done everything they could. They've engaged a rigorous third-party independent researcher to develop information that will then maybe validate their thesis about something they're going to do or providing what we call in the industry red flags or any concerns that they may have missed as a result of not taking an independent, rigorous look at a company, an executive, or a topic before getting involved in it. So the way that it turns out is clients tend to feel that our value is proven a little bit more when we surface things that they might have missed that would be problematic, that would cause them problems reputationally, financially, or otherwise. As far as how I would define stealing in the human intelligence context as misrepresenting what I'm doing in order to get someone to tell me something. So it's basically ill-begotten information because someone is telling me something because there's been a complete, dare I say, lie told to them. This is not something I identify with at all. This is not something I've ever practiced, nor will I ever practice, nor will my firm. And that is a, there's a term for that in, in the human intelligence tradecraft called pretext. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying the actual purpose of the inquiry, they're a fudging of that in order to make the source more comfortable so that maybe they want to share more. And in my opinion, this is a personal opinion. I think that's morally and ethically wrong, but also I just don't think it's effective. What's amazing is in adapting this journalistic background that I have, which was I'm Jen Hoare, 
at CBS News working on a story about X, it told the source what kind of conversation they were having. I've adapted that kind of disclosure to the current context, which is I'm Jen Hoare from Forward Risk, working on due diligence research for a client that wants to invest in or work with X. And I'm calling you because I saw that something about this. So it's fully transparent. It's always true to the purpose. And that's really the only way to do it in my view and in my experience. Yeah. So what, and I'm going to go back to that a little bit later when we talk about investigation skills and processes in general, but I want to ask about your strategy for once you start engaging in this, finding your sources and interviewing, do you have a specific strategy? And you mentioned a moment ago about how you approach them once you speak with them, but do you have a process you generally go through to find those right people and then approach them? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a rigid process, but in the continuum of activities, it's first really understanding gaps in the client's knowledge to see what it is that the, that needs to be the focus, because the kinds of sources you're going to look for need to be matched appropriately toward the knowledge that you're seeking. That clarifying the intelligence requirements, the questions that the client needs answered, that's the first step. And in terms of the process of identifying sources, to get a little bit more into brass tacks, typically if you're doing, for instance, a due diligence on a company or an executive, you're going to look for former employees and colleagues of the executive, the relevant executive, former investors, partners, maybe former customers. Notice that I'm saying former a lot. And that is because it is both too sensitive and inappropriate to talk to active contacts of the person or company that you're researching. There's a whole universe of people that you can find entirely through open source research. And that's where open source and human source are really harmonized in the process of prospecting for who's going to be knowledgeable. Sometimes you'll find through open source research, adverse parties and litigation from the past that would have further insight about litigation records you may have reviewed about a company or an executive. And then the next step, of course, is what I alluded to before, which is the outreach and that preamble that needs to be provided to sources so that they can understand what kind of phone call is this? Who is this? What is this about? What am I participating in? Should I choose to participate? And that brings up one last important point, which is that I think it is crucial and only unfair to disclose to a source, or I'm sorry, to give the source the opportunity to decline. And that goes back to what I said earlier about there's no, quote, getting or compelling anyone to talk to you. It's inviting them to share their knowledge and giving them just as much of an out should they decide not to participate. But the least that we can do is say, here's what I'm about. Here's what my firm is about. And here's what I'm doing. Would you like to help? Yeah. It's interesting, and this is why I wanted to come back to this point, because one of the things that struck me as we were speaking about that, thinking about investigations, which I spend a lot of time thinking about in a different context, is how do you handle that? A lot of times you're going to ask questions, as you put it, one and done. You call, you reach out, the person isn't doing that, and you don't have a relationship other than what's stated. For us, a lot of people in the investigations world in an organization, you have a couple of different things. One, you're protecting the identity potentially of somebody who's made a report. You're talking to someone who may be a current employee. It's a problem. You want to protect the company and you want to do the right thing. 
So, you know, the trans, you want to be transparent. You certainly don't, I've never lied to somebody, but when you're this, who are you investigating? You can't always answer that because you're not even sure. And that's not really what you're looking for. So I wanted to know for you as somebody who deals in so many contexts, your thoughts about that and maybe some, just some general thoughts and advice that you would have, because you are actually doing this a lot. I think we have some similar experiences just with different purposes and audiences. The corollary in my work is I'm contractually obligated, as are my colleagues when we do calls, to not share the identities of our clients. So my uh, my adaptation for that is that doesn't mean that the source doesn't deserve to know generally what the call is about. And so I think it's important to disclose and share, for example, I'm working on behalf of a party that's considering working with, investing in, et cetera, with the company I'm calling you about. That's absolutely true, but it's appropriately discreet. And I often say that discretion with sources and confidentiality obligations to clients are not mutually exclusive. They can work in tandem. There's that part in terms of the discretion piece about the purpose of the research. The second part is we offer and actually guarantee anonymity to our sources. And that's a really sacrosanct principle in this work that I preach widely because that's what enables somebody to share their unvarnished perspective and thoughts and experience. And I think that's a comfort and a an accommodation that we afford them in order to be able to get details. So I think those two parts, I think, may resonate, you tell me, with the kind of work that you do. Of course, I recognize that when you're working within an organization and, you know, that's someone you're going to see the next day at a meeting or you see them around and they're your colleagues, there's a different type of sensitivity that you're exercising. But I think these principles that we were, that I just raised, that you teed up about being appropriately disclosing that you're working on something without necessarily saying exactly what it is because you have an obligation to confidentiality for other reasons and for to other. Yeah, exactly. I think as you were talking, it made me think about two things. One, it, it's we, we afford anonymity, a confidentiality. One of the challenges you have sometimes in an organization is when you have somebody who people can with all the anonymity in the world, and I was saying the word, they may identify themselves by virtue of what they're saying or the timing of it or something. So you have to be really careful because if they say it was during this this shift, if it's something like that, or so you have to figure out how to protect them while still being able to get the information. The second thing that sometimes will happen is they want to, people have an inclination of wanting to make, have the right answer even when there isn't one. And if it's somebody at your organization, sometimes they want to make sure they they know what's going on or something. So some of it is, is this what you were looking for? And (laughs) how many times the answer is, I'm not looking for anything specific. I'm looking for the right answers to people. That's very I'm looking for what your experience is. There's not a right answer to that. People are convinced there's always something else. I've had the opposite experience in some regards where, and I say this to the team at Forward Risk, sources will that we contact will often say, I'm not the right person to talk to. I don't know anything. It's not a, a dissembling that they really don't think they know anything. And then I say to the team, it's our job as professional interviewers to show them that they do know something because they worked at the relevant company. Maybe they right. didn't 
work day to day with the CEO, but our job is to help them see how valuable that they are. And no, like you just said, there isn't a right answer, but let me lead you to the fact that you are a fountain of knowledge for me. Maybe not in exactly the way that you think you should be, but you do have additional knowledge. I also, what you said before about interviewing somebody and they worked a certain shift, there's something of their background that if you were to put that in writing or share that with anybody, they you could be identifying the source. Completely the same in my work, where we're very careful, where let's say there were only two vice presidents at a company during a specific time, then we're not going to say vice former vice president who left in 2019, because that could be searchable and identifiable. So we have to elide that a little bit. Again, being truthful, of course, that the fact that the person had the relevant placement and access to be knowledgeable about something yeah. that they were at the senior levels of an organization, but that could be to protect them and their anonymity. It's It would be important to say former executive who left, left the company in the past three years. Right. Yeah, that's they're the knowledge that they have and their placement without in any way giving giving away identifiable information about them. Yeah. One other challenge that you just made me think of for us that is your your clients generally are looking for as much information as they possibly can get. And it's not, I think, sometimes that ours are not there. If you have somebody who's a leader or a manager of a team and you're investigating somebody on that team that they've always heard or thought only good things about, you have this corollary with trying to keep an anonymity, but you're also bringing some not great news to people that may say, if this person won't by themselves, how do I know that this is credible? This person actually you're telling me did all this has been credible to me. We have that challenge at times. And it's not because someone's trying to avoid wrongdoing. It's I've seen the look on someone's face the first time they see evidence and information that someone they valued and thought was completely upscale for many years may have done something not good. And it's like a personal heartbreak sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly the same in the client relationships we have, but what is very similar is bearing bad news that a, that maybe a client doesn't want to hear. They're very confirmed. They want to do this deal. And we have to tell you something from the public record or from what sources shared that is very unflattering and potentially a deal killer. And of course, in, in the rigors of being an independent researcher, it is incumbent upon us to share the whole universe of information. I had an incident, not incident, experience a couple of years ago where it was right before the holidays and a client was looking at an individual, working with an, in, an investor, an individual in the Middle East. And without going into too much detail, there was something significantly problematic about a connection that the individual had. And they were very unhappy about that, especially before the end of the year when clients want to close deals. And then further human intelligence confirmed this, this connection, this problematic connection, and they were not happy. And But ultimately, we're the facilitators, the messengers of that bad news. But our job is to collect and not, of course, never cherry pick any kind of in, information that we would present. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is very similar often in the in our style of investigations, too, is this is the information. At a certain point, they have to own the decision they're making with right. the information. It's not just up to the investigators. They're, they have to actually utilize this. If they choose not, that's a decision. There are times where that would be very problematic for us in my function. But there are other times where it's you're taking a risk on something that's 
incredibly risky. You have to own that risk. You can't just then blame us because now you now you know about it. And it's a and it's an interesting balance. That's right. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So you've so you've talked about this a bunch, but one of the things that I thought is also really interesting is your training and growing next generation of people and women. What do you think if you were going to talk about few qualities that to you are a good interviewer? What do you look at for that? Oh, this is my favorite topic. And you'll see that I post a lot on LinkedIn about this and all the different skills that go into being a good interviewer. And I take, I'm glad you brought up about this next generation. I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but that's probably the most fulfilling part of my work. I've been doing interviews and intelligence collection and being a journalist for a long time. And it's, it's extremely rewarding and cool to see that, dare I say, replicated in others who are also, more importantly, enjoying it and succeeding in it. I think really important for a good interviewer is focusing on what the other person has to say, not on what you want to accomplish. That means a shifting in your mentality and in your behavior from any kind of presenting or telling to asking and listening. And that there's something very destabilizing about that, that I personally don't mind and find fun, <laughs> which is that you don't have control over how it's going to go. You are responsible for guiding the conversation and trying to accomplish and in, in asking what you'd like to ask. But that shift from being the one to guide everything to being the recipient and receptacle of another person's thoughts and maybe meanderings at times, that is, that's really important. Being a keen listener and I think as a, as a subsidiary part of being a keen listener is not listening to go to your next question that's on your list, but listening as a way of inspiring your next question, because there could be a really juicy follow-up that could deepen what the person just told you. And I, another component, I think that I'm always trying to achieve and get better at is what I hold Terry Gross of Fresh Air up to the highest, I consider her the exemplar of this, which is being cha challenging information or challenging what you're, you've heard when appropriate, but doing so very politely and doing so in a not antagonistic way, because it's important to, to question what you're hearing and certainly clarify anything you don't understand. But also if something sounds wrong or you've heard something that is opposite to appropriately try to reconcile that with the source. And I think that that brings me to that last point or my last point about what makes a good interviewer, which is humility. And the way that is manifested is that you're unafraid to say, I need to go back to that. I want to make sure I understand something. Hang on. You mentioned a term. I don't know what that is. You brought up a term of art in your industry. I don't work in your industry. I'd like to understand it better. That is part of my daily life. I have to do that all the time. I do that in my personal life. I, when I'm talking to somebody and I don't understand something they mentioned, I have no problem saying, I don't know what that is. Can you go back to that? And there's this misunderstanding, I think, that if you do that, then you look dumb. I, I see it as the complete opposite. I think that's the sign of a, of a curious mind and an intelligent mind that you want to, you, you refuse to not understand. And that that's something that I find makes a really good interviewer. That's, yeah, that make, that's a really good point. One of the things that I try to do with, at the end of the interviews, which sometimes, you know, by that time, I'm sure you feel the way many of us do, you're like, okay, we're done. But the, <laughs> I just had 
conversation you didn't want to have for a while. And that's a lot of my life. But one of the parts that I always try to do, and you just seem to do this too, is I've just taken X amount of time out of your day. Is there anything for people often, I might be their only opportunity to talk to somebody from our ethics and compliance function. So is there anything on your mind? What can I help you with? And now you know me if you need something. And even if people don't say anything or they say something that has like nothing to do with anything you've ever complained about, no one's fixed the copy machine in two years. Hey, I'll mention it. But I think for me too, another thing is giving people the opportunity to say what they think is Preaching to the converted, Lisa, I say that, and I teach my team, the last two questions of any interview are, what else should I ask that I haven't already? Which is another version of what you just said, anything else on your mind? And the second is, who else should I talk to? And I caveat that with, obviously, this interview is anonymous, so I'm not going to use your name, but can you steer me in the right direction? Where else should I look for perspective? What other information should I pursue and with whom? Because who better to tell you where to go than someone that you've already identified to be knowledgeable? And that you also remind me of the fact that when you open that up to anything else on your mind, two things. One, let silence sit. Because sometimes people won't respond right away either to that question or any other question. But when you let silence sit, people fill it and they go in new directions that you can't ever plan. And the second thing is, I find it amusing, nine times out of 10, when people do reflexively respond, they say nothing else. And then they immediately start talking about something else. (laughs) So that's why you have to just give as you do in your job and profession, you give people the space to be heard. And it doesn't always need to be fomented by another great Barbara Walters question. It could just be leaving the space that I'm still sitting here with you for anything else that you're thinking about. And sometimes people will come back like a day or two later and say, I've been thinking about our conversation and I just wanted to raise this or this to you. And that's always a helpful thing. Even if information isn't helpful at that point in time, you've made a contact, you have someone that obviously trusts you, get back to them and they know now that you're listening. And that sometimes I think, like you were saying, people aren't active listeners. They're waiting for the net. That's right. Yes. And it ends up being, this sounds weird, but I find it relaxing. <laughs> Maybe that's why I like my job. I find it relaxing to to listen to other people. And while I am actively thinking of, about what they're saying to deepen understanding of what they've shared or maybe go in a new direction, I mean, it's very, very active and in some ways draining, but also re- relaxing experience because you're allowing this other person to share their stories and their perspective and their knowledge. And you're, you have this responsibility and to a certain extent luxury to take that in. And human beings are an incredible source of information. And going back to our original part of the conversation, I think even at a young age, I identified that as being at the crux of being a reporter. It's information gathering nearly entirely through people. Of course, there's, there are all sorts of other forms of research that complement that as is true in my industry as well. But you can't write an article without interviewing people. That just points to the largesse of intelligence that are human beings. Yeah. And you, by talking about your first younger thoughts on this, too, this is a really great way for us to conclude the interview. Is there any advice you'd give to women who want to get into corporate intelligence or human source work, what you're doing? What what would you tell young you before you were coming into this? I'm going to tell everybody else out there, young women and otherwise, what I would tell young me, which is 
do the thing that interests you. And that may lead you to a profession that when you started out, you hadn't heard of, i.e. corporate intelligence and investigations. At age 22, when I worked at ABC News, I didn't know this industry existed. But what I did was I followed the the skills that interested me. I've always liked talking to people. I like being out in the world and exploring and learning from other human beings and interpreting that for my work. And there are a lot of different applications for that. And the good news about corporate intelligence is it draws upon a lot of different professional backgrounds, law enforcement, various forms of government intelligence, journalism, accounting, et cetera. So if you're starting out your career at a college and you're an accountant, who knows, maybe you develop an interest that will lead you to an investigative firm because you get into forensic accounting. Or maybe you were, as you are, an attorney, and maybe that that unfolds into this industry. So I would just encourage pursuing the kind of skills and I like the word tradecraft that interests you and the type of people that interest you and see where that takes you. I would never want to say, here's how to get into corporate intelligence and you should espouse all these qualities. It sounds corny, but I believe very strongly in being yourself and seeing where that takes you. But I think to conclude, the couple of facets of what makes a good interviewer also relate to what makes a good corporate investigator generally. Voracious curiosity good writing, the desire to be uncomfortable, both with irreconcilable information, seemingly that you find in public records, as well as hearing a variety of perspectives from sources and being okay with that. Yeah, those all are important qualities. A lot of them fall in for law too. What you're saying, I think really resonates because I am in what I'm in now as a recovering lawyer. You started (laughs) because I like to help people try to do the right thing and look at the big picture questions and get to those points. And that's what led me to what I do. And it seems to me that's one of the things that has led you to where you are right now. Yes, it's a combination of both gathering information from people and then furnishing information to (laughs) other people. And I guess that's what a lot of us in the knowledge economy are doing anyway. But the thing that really appeals to me, and it sounds like it does to you as well in your work, is it's extremely human being focused insofar as the work is predicated on harnessing the knowledge and insight of other people. There's no other way to do my profession than talking to people. And for that reason, I joke that I'm a Luddite, and this is a very old-fashioned mode of intelligence collection in light of everything else we have access to nowadays, but it's still indispensable and hopefully timeless. Probably more indispensable because, you know, we want to know what's not out there. That's right. That's right. And with that, thank you so much, Jen, for your time. It's great. It's always even better to know people that live in the local DC area. And so on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network and Corporate Compliance Insights, and thank you again, Kelly Paxton, for introducing us. So I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks. Thank you, Lisa. My pleasure. Really great talking with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.